This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. Please join YomTovMediaClub.com. There I was, in fetal position, having cried out everything I had in my post-trauma of birth experience. And I didn't need to mountain bike for three months straight, which had never happened to me before. There was something that I came out of that cry with, that that post-birth separation moment. And that was that was love and connection. Like that's all I want is love and connection. That's all I need is love and connection. Anything else I do is just hoping to get it and maybe it's some kind of counterfeit like attention. You know attention is the counterfeit of love and connection. Did you know that? Attention's the counterfeit. Think about it. Every, everything a woman does, or everything she wears, um, anything that, that might get that attention might somehow, maybe she could transfer it ultimately to love and connection. A man driving a BMW SUV X6 has, is really in the counterfeit of it because in that case it's extra counterfeit because you start living an exclusive life he, well you wind up excluding all the loving connection from your life so not to mention the amount of work you have to do is the sacrifice of one's wife and children's loving connections so but in the end if everyone looks at their life if they get honest they would consider that 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 they've been going for the counterfeit of, of loving connection. Anyway, I came out of that fetal position and I was, I was clear that love and connection is the goal. That's what I want. And it was all around me. It was everywhere. And so I didn't ride my mountain bike for three months, which leads me to believe that the mountain biking is a stimulation, you know, because I'm doing extreme mountain biking. Not just, it's not like a ride in the park. So that extreme stimulation was going to somehow uh, surplant or replace the need for loving connection. And then I thought a bit about why after three months did I have to go mountain, back to my mountain biking? And why did I not have it to begin with? Meaning, why did I need the fetal position cry? And I'll share with you something very deep about connection, and that is that, that uh, there, there was a, there's a book out there that you might want to check out. I forget who wrote it. It's called The Continuum Concept. Not a lot of people have read that book. It's called The Continuum Concept, and it was written by, a, uh, by an anthropologist, a woman who had had a theory that just like the development of the babies got in continuity from literally from conception all the way to birth, that that baby that has spent the last nine months in total connection, total connection, after being born should remain in connection, stay in that same love and connection. Okay, not the same as being in the womb, but as close to it, you want to recreate it as much as possible to keep that so that there's no real break in the connection. 
Now, Western birds don't look like that at all. Western birds are, you know, the baby's born in a hospital situation. It's then taken away, whisked away, put under lamps, um, cleaned up real quick. It's uh, often shot up real quick. And it's, uh, and then, and then maybe makes its way to the mommy to nurse, or maybe if even if it does nurse, not very long, and could have been a C-section, so it's not really going to be nursing at all, and, and now that baby's in a nursery, isolated in a, you know, a little rolling, uh, what do you call those things? Bassinet. Bassinet. In a controlled temperature room with fluorescent lights on it, in a room filled with babies that there's no way the couple nurses, three, two, three nurses in there are going to be able to take care of, and and that's the baby's situation until it finally comes to and screams its bloody head off in full isolation, and of course everyone believes it's hungry. That's the whole you know, especially if you're Jewish or Italian, so. It's clearly hungry, but they don't realize. They don't realize the hunger is an emotional thing. Hunger is emotional. You, know, you can feel hunger pains, but they go away eventually. You notice by the end of Yom Kippur, you're not as hungry as you were during when your stomach was ready to actually have something hit it, like around mid morning. You know that's when it's kind of bad because it's like your body's just like, "Hey, where's the food?" But those hunger pains go away eventually. Yeah, you're weak. You're kind of not very strong, but you're but you're not hungry. And how many of us have, at the end of a 24-hour fast, even in the Tisha B'Av fast in the middle of the summer, when it was finally time to eat and drink, where you you gave it another few minutes, not a big deal. Hunger is not physical. Hunger is emotional. Our need for nutrition is physical. But the word hunger is nothing to do with physicality. And it might be good for all of us, especially those of us who are, who are trying to watch our intake and our relationship with food needs a little fixing, is to recognize that hunger is, is uh, emotional. It's not physical. Yeah? How do you tell us ever? Well, your stomach will growl when it's time for intake. Until my stomach growls, I usually will not eat. Once in a while, I know I'm going out for hours, and I will not be around food. And we don't have Powerballs at the time. My, we have raw food. We have a whole containers of you know raw food Powerballs that my wife and daughters make that are superfood foods. You know, it's date based. You make them in little balls and pop them in a little bag and stick it in your pocket for the day. But sometimes we're out of Powerballs, and I might eat a little preemptive food. This morning I did. My wife made a delicious oatmeal with nuts and berries and stuff. And, and uh, I was teaching a lunch and learn in this building, but I had a feeling I was going to be doing the teaching, and they were going to be doing the lunch. And that would have gotten me to 2 p.m. without a single bite of food today, because I was not yet hungry. And so I preempted the lunch and learn with about five bites of oatmeal. And... So, anyway, hunger is an emotional state. Now, again, if you're Jewish or Italian and a baby's crying, it's because it's hungry, in your opinion. But that's not what's going on. What's going on is the baby's in shock of disconnect. 
It's in total disconnect. It's spent the last nine months in total connection, in the undifferentiated oneness of its mother's womb. And now it's kind of woken up to isolation. And now here it is in a crib or a bassin or whatever, a stroller, whatever it is, starts screaming its head off. And of course, everyone, what does everyone say? The baby's hungry. And then what do they do? They take the baby to the mommy, or the mommy takes the baby, and then she stuffs it with warm, sweet milk. While WhatsApping. Whatever she's up to. Now, what happens when you stuff somebody with warm, sweet milk? What do they do? They pass out. And so now the baby passes out, and the mommy's like, you know, what do I need this appendage for? You know, let's just pop it right back down into its padded cell, back into his little isolation tank, and, uh, you know, like, women's liberation from her child, you know. She's going to liberate herself. And there goes the baby back into its isolation, and and uh, she's back at work until screaming away again, and the baby must be hungry. No baby's ever been hungry. They just don't have that. We've been hungry because, you know, we, we're the ones who need the loud music and the, and the, the drugs and the alcohol and the, and the fast driving and the crazy relationships. And, you know, but, but we're, we're, we're messed up. And, and in the book, The Continuing Concept, she believes we're messed up because of that separation. That it's called the continuum concept, but our continuity was broken up through sporadic connects and disconnects. Connects and disconnects. Connect to the mommy, pass out, disconnect. Scream in isolation and loneliness, brought back, connect, pass out, disconnect. And so the theory is that, that the reason your relationships are the way they are, like accordion relationships, where it's like, you know what an accordion is, the music accordion? So your relationships are like an accordion where, where, you know, you, he says, I love you, and she says, I love you. And then, and then of course, they, most people, because of this disconnect, would rather want love than have it. And that's a very deep statement. I want you to think about that. Would you rather want love than have it? To the point where you sabotage relationships so that you can go back to wanting instead of having. But what happens is there's a there's I love you. I, he says I love you. She says I love you. But but then but I don't. Ha- I'm having an identity crisis having this connection because I've I'm addicted to wanting love. I don't know what to do with myself when I'm having it, and so therefore I must sabotage it in some way by doing something toward my spouse that's going to make the, make it painful and hurtful. At which point, he says, I hate you, and she says, well, I hate you. And the next thing they say is, I can't live without you, baby. I can't live without you. I love you, I love you. Do something stupid, I hate you, I hate you. I can't live without you, I love you. Do something stupid. I hate you. I hate you. I love you. I love you. 
can't live without you. I love you. I can't live without you. Do something stupid. And so everyone's got this accordion relationship going on. So, so the author of this work said to herself, what if I went down to the Amazon jungle and found untouched tribes of people who give birth in the jungle? No hospitals, no nurseries, no strollers. Strollers wouldn't be very effective in the jungle. No cribs, no bassinets. What if we go there and check things out? And so that's exactly what they did. She went down to the jungles and did her whole anthropological you know, exploratory trip. And, and what she did find was there are no cribs or strollers or any of that stuff in nurseries. That as soon as the baby's born, the baby is put on top of the mommy and begins nursing and never leaves that mommy or any other human being till the baby's already able to walk. Or crawl, whatever. So the baby's able to crawl. So she proves this amazingly in that there's no um, baby's hands, sorry, baby's bodies have no muscles. A baby can't even hold its most important appendage up, which is the head. You know, when you hold a baby, you gotta support the head, because the head, the neck has no muscles yet. None of the body has muscles, except for what part of the body? The hands. It's got this Vulcan grip. And she claims that God gave the baby the Vulcan grip because the baby was going to be holding on for the ride. Meaning the baby's going to be attached to her hip and the upper part of the body of the baby is going to be supported by its grip on the, on the sling on the right side and maybe her clothes or the sling on the left side coming around her back. The baby's just going to hold on for that. So if she's going to climb trees for coconuts, guess who's coming? If she's going down river to get water, jumping over boulders and getting her way down the river, guess who's coming? If they're running away from a cannibalistic tribe, guess who's coming? Yeah, And that the babies are born to be held full time, all the time, never separated from their source until the baby itself can crawl away and grow back and crawl away and crawl back crawl away and and unlike western parents who try to show the kid how to be independent by putting the baby over there and seeing the baby can navigate back to mom and dad which just shows fear you know builds fear but they let the baby keep running away and coming back and it's called proven dependence you give the baby proven dependence meaning I'm I'm, I, I, I will prove to this baby that I am dependably here for that baby. So the baby's ready to actually go around a corner, which for babies means you don't exist anymore because they don't have, they're not so conceptual. So they don't have a concept you still exist once they go around the corner. Of course, they come flying back around the corner to see if you're there. And there you are. And so, hey, they start going around another corner, come flying back to see if you're there. And that's proven dependence. I'm proving you can depend on me. So they checked out these tribes as adults and they noticed a couple things. One of the things they noticed was that there's no such thing as accordion relationships. There's no one there who would rather have love, sorry, would rather 
want, love, then have it. But they actually have it and have it and have it and have more of it and more of it and more of it. Like, the intimacy is very high in these tribes. They don't have this shoot yourself in the foot accordion thing going on. That's not part of life there. They also noted that, that adults and even adult males, there were no daredevils. Which is an interesting thing because this whole class is being taught by a daredevil. And, I mean, I, I do things with Skittles and, you know, years and years of, of uh, experience, but, but certainly a daredevil. And the after having a primal scream cry after birth and coming away with this realization that all I really want is love and connection, I didn't need to mountain bike for three months. And in these societies, men don't have those needs. And they explain the connection that, that the, when you're born holding on for dear life, you get it out of your system. It's just part of life. It's just the ride. And you're, you're not protected the way we protect our babies. You know, you're, there's, there's a rawness to being an adult in the jungle, and the baby's part of all of that. And isn't looking for the, the raw stimulation of a precarious dance between chaos and order. I mean, think about me going over a... Uh, you know, and we have a lot of ancient walls here on the trails, and sometimes the only way down the next chute is on a corroded old stone wall that's become like almost arched around, and you have to you got an abyss on either side of you, nothing there, and that's chaos. But your concentration on the center of the wall, riding, that's order. Or if I'm surfing. A wave is the ultimate expression of chaos. And you've seen the white water. I mean, it's funny order and chaos because waves coming in perfect, you know, they're exactly, the interval between wave is exact. You know, we, when we have a swell in you know, California, like the ultimate swell was like straight out of the West at an 18 to 20 second, 18 second interval or even more, but it was exactly 18 seconds between each wave. And that, that's a really good swell. And uh, Israel, this interval, they're wind waves in Israel. We get them from storms in the Mediterranean. And so the intervals are more like seven, eight seconds. So it's kind of like a bathtub. You get tons more exercise in, in minutes, in, uh, per minute, because you're just, every time you get out of there, there's another one. And seven second intervals. You're not waiting around much. But it's good because it holds a crowd well. When you're at, when you're at 18 second intervals, you got to kind of wait your turn to get in position for a wave. Whereas in Israel, there's just so many waves coming through that everyone gets their pick. But think about it, when that wave breaks into the white water, the whitewash, that's just total chaos. And think about a surfer inside the tube of a wave, of a big wave. He's in, the, he's in order with chaos all around him. And if anything goes wrong, So we have some kind of need for chaos. And our need is deep, too. 
Um, I think they, I just saw a study that uh, statistically people who have uh, better relationships are more likely to break up. There's a, there's a certain um, challenge in challenging marriages where your spouse challenges you. Now, if you're always challenged, that's also going to break up. You understand, if a marriage is nothing but challenge, that probably... You know, unless you're very traditionally based, the chance of a breakup for a challenging marriage is high. But but it's interesting that statistically, apparently, marriages with no challenge also have a high chance of breakup. So there's a certain aspect of chaos there that we thrive on, thrive off of, as Westerners in relationships that don't exist in the in the people who care for the, ch- the babies in a, with continuity from birth on. Now, I'm, by the way, I'm not here to tell anybody to have their baby on them full time. But my wife and I were like midway through having children. We had a good like 20 year run of children. And, uh, and that, uh, but it was about halfway through that when we got a hold of this information. And the second half of our kids got much more holding time, much more continuity with us than the first children. And uh, I wonder, I guess we'll only know when there will be adults how that panned out for them. Let's see. Anyone have any questions at this point? I never break for questions, but I feel like this is, this, this is the time. Okay, so I just want to bring up one more thing, and that's the, um, is it artificial stimulation? Is, um, is uh, you know, it's, because it's, I was talking about sports. There's also amusement parks and water parks and hang gliding and, and sky uh, diving. And, and there's re- turning our relationships into roller coaster rides. You know, that, that's the stuff we were talking about. But there's also, uh, there's also people who use, who use uh, opiates, uh, you know, narcotic-type painkiller stuff for, their, uh, for the pain of, the, of disconnect. People, there are many people, you'll notice that there's a direct correlation between drug addicts and families that were not safe. And sometimes the family was safe for everyone but that kid, you know, like it's pretty safe for everyone except that kid, which is interesting that there are families that were safe for everybody but one kid just did not feel safe for that family. And it's not hard to understand because let's say you have a very structured family. So you got two parents and three kids because that's what fits best in a sedan. And the... And nobody wants a minivan, you know, in, the, in that community. And everything is very structured except what happens is kid number three is born a total flowmeister. Not a structured bone in the body of that kid. Like, doesn't get math, doesn't get writing, doesn't get rules, doesn't get school, doesn't get... He just doesn't get any of that stuff. Like, this is the kid who will not sit down on the LL flight. 
you know, he's just going to be, that's his jungle gym for the next 12 hours, that kid. And that, I can tell you right away, that family's not safe for that kid. They love him or her. They love the child, but but this is going to be a situation of a of a you know a good eighteen years, if not more, of, of complete misunderstanding of what that child needs. And that's that's and that's you know that's hardly called abuse, but it is abusive. In that uh, the denial that God creates flow and structure, people in a family is uh, that's pretty that's pretty harsh. To do all, every one of us. The second our child is a toddler, we have to identify whether their flow or structure, and then and then move accordingly. So it doesn't mean you're not going to send your kid to school. What school? Flow or structure? Structure. You got to send your kid to school. So you send them to school, but you always realize that you're on damage control when they get home. Where is God in scenario? Flow and structure. The family. Which one? And there were a lot of scenarios. Which scenario? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, some of the greatest people in the world went through hell first. And I think it could be that God sometimes wants either a structured person in a flow family or a flow person in a structured family to go through hell and then come out the other side and make a big difference. So... I think when we're when we're gentle and kind and and uh, sensitive to a kid who's a little different in our family, that kid com- becomes well adjusted. But well adjusted people don't often make a difference, like kids who had to go through a lot. They don't come out as well adjusted, and they and they and they may come out actually having had to work out a lot of stuff. And there's something there's a correlation between people who've had to work out a lot of stuff. And being able to help others work out their stuff. You understand? Like if someone worked out a lot of stuff, they likely help you do the same. And they could even lead people into victory in various ways that would require them to go through a hell of a lot more hell to get to their, uh, to get to peace in their hearts. That why go through hell when you can have someone who went through the real hell who had to figure it all out and can guide you out of your own lesser hell you don't not all of us has to figure out everything like let that guy figure it all out anyway but there are there are stimulants that are numbing agents but there's also stimulants that people get into that are you know that are uh, what's the word uh, imbibed is a less fancy word than imbibed uh, ingested yeah, there's other things that people ingest that are Disneyland like things like yesterday our class was on cannabis um, that's a Disneyland like thing and there's there's things that people ingest that are highly stimulating not a, non-addictive not they're not there for pain they're there for just pure stimulation and and it could be the same exact thing that's going on is that disc, the discontinuity of childhood discontinuity of childhood is in the lack of stimulation of running around with the mommy is uh, causing some kids to be what you call psychonauts. I don't know if you know, but there's a whole population today of people called psychonauts. You can look that up online. It begins with a P, by the way. Psychonauts. 
and there uh, there's a whole underground world of psychonauts out there and there and it could very well be the same thing it's just instead of me like on the mountain bike they're just doing it all internally you know using other kinds of stimulants And so the mystery I'm going to leave you with is, because uh, we're at 4 o'clock now, the mystery I'm going to leave you with is, uh, can, you, can you hit the power button on the AC on your way out? Just to, yeah, there you go. The mystery I'm going to leave you with is, look how much nicer that is. That I didn't answer is, why after the three months, having realized that love and connection is all that there is and all that I want and all that I need, which took away all need for my sports, what happened after those three months? It went away. Yeah, it did go away. It did go away. And the stimulating came back. All the stimulation came back. Meaning the external stimulation came back. And I'm just thinking about back to the Westernism. Is is there just a basic underlying Westernism, a disconnect in Westernism? I'm trying to. I don't know the answer right now. I'm thinking about my my narcissistic background. I grew up in a place where narcissism is not listed. You know, there's one of the personality disorders. There's ten personality disorders. You know. BPD and bipolar and all these different person. Uh, sorry, I say bipolar. I didn't mean that. BPD and uh, and uh, AD. not OCD. All, what? Not, yeah, split personality and so, anyway, one of the personality disorders is called narcissistic personality disorder. Unless you're from LA, it's not a disorder. It is the order. And it's not a disorder, it's the order. And um, being a narcissist is, amongst narcissists, which is really easy, it really works more or less in LA, because you, one narcissist can say, hey, I want to hang out with another one. And then you do hang out, as long as it works for both of you. And there's no hard feelings at all if it doesn't. Really, I mean, it's weird in L.A. how you can, like, be really quite close with someone and then not be. And absolutely no drama. Like, East Coast people who would get that close and then not be, that'd be, like, something that you'd have to work out in therapy for, like, a year. There's, there's no drama involved in the narcissistic culture of Los Angeles to be super close and just not talk ever again. Because you're just going, whatever works for you at any given time. So that's my inquiry right now. And I'm going to think about that. Maybe I'll speak more about that later in the week. But i got to think about it. Is I wonder if the narcissistic upbringing engenders a disconnect that, that is counterthetical to, to, the, to the loving connection that we all seek. Including all those narcissists deep down want. But is there a part of us, if, you're, if you've got that 
narcissistic background that that will nevertheless go back to pushing away pushing away and and I I I think about that Mm, depends who and where. Not everyone was. Oh, you'd be born with it like that, yeah. But yeah, but social. You can socialize the all about me baby into being communal very quickly. The intensity of the East Coast people can also put you right back into what you're describing because it's a very deep uh, you're yelling psychosis. So you know, I put you both. Yeah, I haven't lived in LA for. 35, three years, but uh, I've been spending a lot of time in the East Coast, so I, I work mostly with the East Coast overly enmeshed people, you know, really overly enmeshed people, especially in the Hasidic world where it's extremely enmeshed. Um, okay, gang, well, that's today's class. I'm not sure what it was all about exactly, but hope you all grew from it and learned something and and maybe all of us will need a little less stimulation today and maybe a little more connection with our loved ones. We'll be uh, the, on order now. Shalom. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.